you know, I think that we could very well bounce in October, November, December. We might wind up posting a lower high this year than where we were back in July. That would not be surprising. Maybe we get to 4,500 by year end. That would probably be a logical place for kind of for markets to drive to. But, you know, again, if we post a, a lower high, then that's certainly going to be a concern heading into next year. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you here at the end of the week for another weekly market recap featuring my extremely telegenic friend, Lance Roberts, portfolio manager from Real Investment Advice. Lance, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. You must be uh, friendly with a small dinosaur because every week it's new terms. <laughs> yeah, pet the source that you're talking yes, about. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we got to keep everybody, you know, looking forward to something new at the beginning of these uh, since we do these every single week. Um, exactly. And we got a lot to talk about this week. A lot of data came out. Um, you know, if you looked at the the, the beginning of the weekend price uh, for the market and the end of the weekend price, you would think not too much happened. But the market kind of took a big round trip uh, this week. Um, so tell us, you know, what are you seeing here? Is this is the market finally finding its footing after some weeks of weakness here, or what do you think? Well, there's there was a lot of panic early in the week. You know, market was selling off and bond yields were ticking up, and you know, lots of you know headline driven narratives about you know, oh my gosh, why is this happening or that happening? And and what everybody forgot was is that the last week of September is all you know. First of all, it's the end of the quarter, so you have some you know activity that occurs around, um, you know, fund managers at the end of the quarter. But most importantly, there's about 20% or so of hedge funds, mutual funds, uh, you know, big, big pension funds, et cetera, that is their fiscal year end. So they're having to make their annual distributions and those type of things, which, you know, can, can, can push the market in two directions, depending on what the market was doing previously. It can either push the markets up or push the markets down. And that was a lot of really what looked like was going on this week. We saw a lot of kind of, of what seemed to be more, you know, kind of this need to sell. And I don't want to say capitulatory because it really wasn't that dramatic. We didn't see a huge spike in volatility. It did pick up a little bit, but not dramatically so. But it certainly had, there was really no news of, of any consequence uh, uh, to any really great degree this week to drive the moves like we saw. So it really had that flair of this was potentially just kind of more positioning for the end of the quarter. And this also is, is a good, is a great setup. You know, things are actually kind of working out, you know, kind of as we hope for. Um, you know, we're getting the markets to a very oversold condition. Cinnamon is getting very negative. Our technical indicators are getting very over, oversold. So this is actually becoming a really, really good setup for that kind of year-end rally we've been talking about. Okay. Um, we're obviously going to get to your trades later on in the discussion, your specific trades. But you know, I believe you've mentioned on past recent videos here that you guys were going to be looking for entry points as the market you know, started weakening here. Have you been nibbling in at this point in time? Um, we've been we we have been over the last couple of weeks. We haven't done anything uh, this week to any great degree, other than you know personally, I bought more bonds this week. But that's just me personally. But in our client accounts, we haven't done a whole lot this week, only because we're just waiting for the quarter end to actually end, which is uh, was on Friday. So starting on Monday, we'll be into the new quarter. We'll have, of course, not only with kind of the new quarter, we've got earnings season starting. Um, after we get through October, we get stock buyback starting back up. So 
on Monday or Tuesday, we'll probably be re, you know, doing a, a, we're pretty much fully weighted. We're currently near our target equity weighting anyway after the last couple of weeks of buying. Um, but kind of coming into next week, we were just having this conversation Friday morning. Uh, we've kind of got some some last trades kind of set up of, of companies that we're going to be looking to, to, that we already own. We're just going to add to those positions. Okay. All right. Um, it's interesting. You know, there was a lot of hand wringing earlier this week. People really started to begin to, I would say, almost sort of panic about rising bond yields. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I know there's going to be a big chunk of, uh, of viewers here that just can't wrap their brains around how the markets might end up powering higher into the year. You and I have talked about that multiple times in past recent videos, so I'm not going to really uh, hash it here except just to Tell anybody, whether you're very bullish or you're very bearish is your primary thesis, uh, to always be open to your thesis not playing out, at least in the short term, and, and hopefully at least being positioned well enough that if your thesis goes against you, you're not taking on too many uh, unexpected losses in your portfolio. You're sort of smiling and nodding as I'm saying this. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, we're talking about potentially a rally that lasts a month or two, maybe two and a half months. There's going to be some volatility on the way. Um, come the first two weeks of December, you can expect another correction in the markets. That's because we get about another 25% or so, 25-30% of mutual funds, hedge funds, et cetera, doing their year end uh, in the first couple of weeks of December. So you get those annual distributions of capital gains and interest income, et cetera, all occurring at that point. So you expect some more volatility um, you know, around those first two weeks of December. And then you kind of get that year-end chase, you know, proverbial kind of Santa Claus rally into the end of the year because everybody will want to have all the positions on their books when they report earnings at the end of the year and report their, their fund positions. They want to make sure that, you know, they own NVIDIA and Apple and Google and Tesla. They may not have owned it all year, but they'll own it in the last on that report comes and their, their investors see the report. You know, they own all the right stocks, you know, on their portfolio. So, you know, that's what's going to be driving the markets potentially now and year end. Now, once we get into 2024, you know, all bets are off. I just uh, I've been writing a couple of articles over the last couple of weeks, just have one out, to, uh, you know, yesterday, as a matter of fact, talking about the yield curve and uh, in particular, you know, what has happened historically. And this kind of this idea of this soft landing narrative is really not likely. And, you know, everybody points back to 1995 and says, well, we had a soft landing in 1995. Well, we did, but we didn't have the ingredients that <laughs> we have predicted a recession, right? The, at, the, the toxic time. soup that you and I talk about every week. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and more importantly, the yield curves never inverted in 1995. In 1998, yield curves inverted. And in 2000, you had the recession. So, you know, there's, there's, you know, you, it's hard to say that this time is going to be a soft landing when that has never occurred when there's been inverted yield curves, particularly when you have 90% of the 10 yield that we, we track 10 different yield curves um, that, that affect the economy in both the short end and the long end. 90% of those are inverted. Whenever you've had 50% or more, you've always had a recession, period, end of story. Uh, it has never not been a case. And, and so, say, you know, when we get to 2024, and again, you and I have talked about this before, that, you know, everybody was expecting a recession in 2022. Now that you didn't have one, everybody's like, oh, great, it's a soft landing. No, it's just delayed because of all this monetary and fiscal stimulus still working its way through the system. And we've been pretty vocal about saying, hey, you know, the recession's coming. It's probably going to be in 20, latter half of 2024, though. 
Oh, you're putting in the latter half now. Well, no, no. It's, I've always been, you know, second, third, fourth quarter of, you know, it's it's not going to happen in the first quarter. It's too soon. Um, you know, the the economic data still coming in is fairly strong. So we've got to kind of work that off here a little bit more. Uh, so okay. it'll be, you know. I, I, I just mentioned it because we've had, you know, different people on the channel kind of placing their stakes. So I want to make sure we know where your stake is. Yeah. Last week, we talked about how Darius Dale yeah. said his window has been between November and, and April, but he said, you know, it's looking to me like it's probably going to be more like April, you know, 2024, right? He, so he's, yeah, he's my, sort of in Q2, we'll say. Yeah, yeah. My bet's more August, September next year. Okay. Um, all right. Well, look, um, so you talked about several things that I want to drill into. Um, one in particular is the uh, the bear steepening that's going on right now in the yield curve. Had a really interesting interview with bond uh, analyst Alf Pecatiello that actually is uh, premiering on Wealthion's channel as you and I are recording this, Lance. So I want to get some of your reactions to some of the observations that Alf had. But but before, if we can, I'm going to pull up some data in just a few minutes. But can you pull up um, the, your standard chart of the S&P? And I just want to update folks because we sort of agreed that we try to bring that up, you know, most weeks when we talk to, to show folks where we are. And, and in particular, if, if you can talk to how, I'm doing this from memory, but it was, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday this week, where we had a pretty big drop in the S&P. I want to say it was like, you know, a percent and a half or something like that. And all of a sudden, there was this sense of like, oh my gosh, is this it? Is this the breaking point, right? And um, I want you to speak to the technicals here, because it seems that the technicals are still holding in quite well that, yeah, the market dropped, but then it bounced off support here. Right. And, and again, you know, the, the and again, it was a it was a rough it was a rough Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I mean, um, you know, it, no doubt about that. You know, but interestingly enough, you know, we have to go back more than 100 days to see a day where the market fell by one and a half percent, which happened earlier this week. And that was that big kind of moment where it was like, oh, my gosh, um, you know, it's been a while since we've seen one half percent declines. In other words, and that goes that really speaks to that kind of low volatility environment we've been in. Volatility has been very low. And we've been talking about for a while that, you know, that very low volatility was going to reverse at some point. And, you know, this is you know part of that kind of summer correction that, that we've been discussing really ever since June. Um, you know, back in June and, and July, both we were writing articles saying, hey, you know, be sure and you know you should expect to have a three to a five to a ten percent correction sometime this summer. That's completely normal, completely within the parameters of how markets function in any given year, and it shouldn't be a surprise. And I even told you, I said, as soon as we get it, everybody's going to be like, "Oh my gosh, the bear market's back!" Right? And and uh, you know, the, the bull trap is in, and, and you know, right. all those stories. And that's exactly what we saw. This has, has still been a very orderly normal summer correction. Uh, the markets had gotten very oversold here over the last week, RSI down at 30. And so, you know, that kind of led to the bounce on Thursday and Friday. Um, nice reversal, by the way, on Thursday. Um, both stocks and bonds were down early in the morning. Both of them rallied back into positive territory at the end of the day. And, and that's exactly that kind of late day buying that starts to show you that institutions are stepping in and starting to buy things. So, you know, that kind of late day buying was very different than what we saw earlier in the week where we were seeing late day selling. Um, and, and so that's that was kind of a key difference on Thursday and Friday as well. And again, I think that really speaks to that. It really kind of looked like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week. It was institutions just 
prepping for fiscal year end. And, you know, then on Thursday and Friday, they were starting to reposition, you know, for the next quarter. Um, so, so again, you know, it's just the market's playing out kind of exactly what you would expect. We're down seven, about down about 7% from the peak altogether. That's not dramatic. You know, people forget we were up 15% from February of, of, of this year to the peak in July. We were up 15%. The S&P is still up 12% for the year. So having a 7% correction when you're up 15% shouldn't be surprising uh, given that markets don't return 30% on an annualized basis every year, right? So, you know, it's just, you know, keeping some things in perspective that's important. Markets set right on the 150-day moving average, turned up. That's that blue line there on the chart. And again, we got some resistance here at 4,400. So we might rally, you know, first couple of days of next week, uh, run right out of resistance. Don't be surprised if we kind of bounce off of that. We sell off a little bit. Um, there's a lot of people that got kind of caught in the sell-off. So they're looking for a rally to sell into. So don't think it's just going to be, you know, October 1st, straight off to new time, you know, new all-time highs. That's not going to be the case. You know, I think that we could very well bounce in October, November, December. We might wind up posting a lower high this year than where we were back in July. That would not be surprising. Maybe we get to 4,500 by year end. That would probably be a logical place for, kind of for markets to drive to. But, you know, again, if we post a, a lower high, then that's certainly going to be a concern heading into next year. OK. Um, all right. Well, you know, we'll be tracking that. And if we do, we'll we'll talk about what that means, if and when that's what where the year ends. Um, really quick here, if you could just remind folks that the moving average that's there in the blue line that, uh, you know, the latest data sort of bounced off of this week, which moving average is that? That's the 150. So here, let me, I'll, I'll put up a kind of a one more, let me just switch charts real quick. And, and you know, this is kind of the more of the normal one that we look at. So this one is our MACD indicator at the top. That's kind of our standard buy sell signal for the market, still on a sell signal. Uh, that's now starting to turn up. And this is exactly what you want to see, by the way, uh, for the seasonally, the start of the seasonally strong period of the year. So when we when we actually trigger that MACD buy signal that should occur in the next you know week or so that will actually officially mark the beginning of the seasonally strong period for the markets and again that's a fairly oversold condition for a MACD in a bullish trending market so there's a good bit of upside uh, you know for that MACD to travel during the next rally um, we broke through the red line on this chart is the 20 day moving average the blue lines the 50 the black lines the 200 we haven't gotten there yet. Um, but we did break through the 20 and the 50 earlier this year, so uh, earlier this summer. Uh, so that was certainly part of that corrective process that we're in. But again, you know, markets are oversold here on a short term basis, um, got below 30 on the RSI index. Again, a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo. But what it says is, is that, you know, you corrected some of that exuberance. More importantly, in, in our newsletter this weekend at realinvestmentadvice.com, we're actually going through this whole kind of technical setup for this rally. And, and importantly, in this context, investor sentiment got very negative. Technical positioning uh, on a weekly basis got very negative. So again, you know, that's the fuel, sentiment and technical positioning is the fuel that potentially drives the rally. So once you start turning sentiment and turning those technicals, that's going to start dragging more and more people who are betting on the market to keep going down. Now they've got to cover their shorts, and they've got to start buying back into equities. And so that's what will drive the market. Then we get October, uh, sorry, November, like I said, then you get $5 billion a day in stock buybacks, which further kind of uh, fuels the market higher.
Right. Okay. So, um, you know, you almost think of the market as sort of, you know, pendulums within a pendulum, right? You know, you get the big pendulum that is, you know, what the market's doing over the course of the year, but then you have these, you know, smaller pendulums that are just what it's doing at any given time, right? Where people on both sides of the pendulum, they swing from basically fear to greed or bearish to bullish, right? And the indicators that you're looking at, at least in, in the near term, suggest that, okay, you know, um, the pendulum swung real far uh, to bearish and oversold. Um, and now we're beginning to see that it is just potentially beginning to swing back, right? And, and once you get that buy signal, which you expect to get in the next week or so, that'll give you confidence, right? That, okay, yep, pendulum's now swinging, but we're still kind of in the early stage of it. So if we hop in now, we can get a really nice ride out of this thing. And, and again, you know, it's always interesting if, if you take a look at the bottom indicator there, that's the relative strength index. And, you know, whenever that is up above 70, that's when everybody wants to buy stuff. So, you know, and, and, and this is always goes to basic investor psychology. And, you know, if you're sitting at home right now watching this video, go, man, I don't want anything to do with this market. It just keeps selling off. You need to you need to, you know, start figuring out how to buy stuff um, when you're wanting to buy stuff. That's when you need to figure out how to start selling stuff. And you know, this is because investors always do exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. They don't want to buy stuff that's beaten up and, and sold off and oversold and nobody wants it anymore. Now, no, look, there's certain things you don't want to buy that are beaten up. You don't want to buy Peloton, right, as a good example. There's, there's companies that are fundamentally broken you don't want to own. But there are certain asset classes that you want to buy when nobody else seems to want them. If you're buying an ETF as an index, like you're, you're an S&P index buyer, you want to buy the index every time everybody gets bearish because that's always long-term been a great entry opportunity. If you're if you're at home, well, man, I can't wait to buy in. You need to step back and second guess yourself about buying something because you're probably buying into the hot hype and you're probably buying when something is grossly overbought because everybody else has already bought it. The reason you want to buy it now is because the price has already gone up. Um, nobody wants to buy bonds right now because you know they, they've been just getting you know beat over the head with a hammer but this is why every time they get beat over the head with a hammer, I'm stepping in and buying more because the fundamental backdrop of bonds hasn't changed. Bonds don't go to zero. So, you know, there's a real opportunity there to make a lot of money that that people that are involved in the price of it and the, and the short term sentiment are completely missing out because they're letting emotion drive their investment parameters. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, great. And by the way, we're going to talk more about bonds in just a little bit. Um, so, you know, technical analysis isn't everything, right? Oh. But it's a very useful tool and it does give us a pretty good measure most of the time where we are um, in terms of, you know, market trajectories and things like that. And, you know, what I just want to point out here is, is if you and others were making the arguments, yeah, I think stocks are going to power higher from here into the end of the year. Right. But instead of the RSI bouncing off a of 30 here, it was above the red line, above 70. Right. Then we right. might say, really? Because it seems pretty overbought. Right. Right. Uh, similarly, if 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 the uh, you know same thing, obviously, on the MACD, if, if it weren't, you know, down below that dotted blue line, but it was it was up near its apex, we'd, we'd be similarly 
skeptical. Oh. Or if the main just, you know, action of the S&P there was actually above its moving averages, if it was above the 50-day, right? All those things would tell us, you know what? The activity is actually un probably unsustainably exuberant right now, right? Um, but we're seeing exactly the conditions that you would expect to see that could proceed or run up from here. Right. And look, and this has been our this has been our our our, our jib kind of the whole year this year so far. Um, you know, when in June and July, when you and I were discussing, we said, "Hey, we're ready for a you know you expect a five to a three to five to a ten percent correction this summer." That was because everything was very very overbought back in March when you know we were having central bank failures. We we're like, "Hey, we're we're starting to buy." We started buying some of those regional banks. Markets were very oversold. Markets had, had sold off nicely from, from the kind of the previous run. Great entry opportunity. Same thing back in, in December when we were talking about potential sell-off, you know, in December. Markets had gotten very overbought. We said, hey, take some risk off the table. Time to look for that opportunity. Back in October when we were talking about, you know, the markets are so bearish, it's bullish, was because markets had gotten deeply oversold. So, these indicators are great short-term indicators. They're good for a month or two. That's about it. That's all technicals are good for. Um, but, they'll, but they do kind of give you guidance about the overall psychological sentiment of the market, which is this live and breathing organism of buyers and sellers. Fundamentals drive the long-term return. So if you're buying something that's fundamentally strong, fundamentally based, you're going to make money with that long-term. You're not going to make money a month money on it in six months. You might not make money on it for two years, but a good fundamental investment will make money for you more so than not any other investment over the long term. Fundamentals drive long-term returns. Technicals are only good for short-term variability in, in portfolios and markets. Okay. Um, well, look, I know that one of your long-term um, investments that you're very excited about now is bonds. And so we're going to get to that uh, again. We've been talking about that every week, but we'll do this week's uh, update in just a little bit. Um, let me just bring in some uh, recent data here, one that uh, was driving markets on Friday. Um, so uh, markets got a little bit of a, a, a boost because the Fed's preferred uh, measurement of, or one of its preferred measurements of inflation, um, PCE, um, it, uh, it, it fell uh, on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, and, uh, well, sorry, uh, it, it, it rose on a year over year basis, 3.9%, but that was a drop from uh previous month, which was 4.2%. So it's been coming down, um, now just drop below the four handle. This is the lowest since September of 2021. So it's the lowest reading in two years. Um, so, you know, some are saying, okay, this is giving the fed confidence that, you know, it's finally beginning to get some control of over inflation. Um, obviously it's not, not coming down super fast here, but it's showing, you know, progress in the right direction. Now it's hard not to roll your eyes a little bit when you talk about PCE, um, because it's X food and X energy, <laughs> which are two critical things that, uh, consumers need, need to buy. Um, they're much more volatile, which is why the feds strips it out of the measurement here. Um, but you know, with high oil prices right now and food prices, you know, in many cases still back on the rise. Uh, I think most consumers say, I don't really care about this metric because it doesn't reflect my personal life. Um, but anyways, Lance, we just wanted to get a sense from you. How material is the continued decline in PCE here, in your opinion? Well, and first of all, considering that PCE makes up, you know, 70% of the GDP component, it's, it's pretty damn important. Um, also, in just the recent, we just had the five-year revisions 
to GDP yesterday on Thursday, and uh, which basically wiped out PCE for the last quarter. So there's a big drag in PCE that's coming uh, right now, and that's still continuing to feed through. And again, exactly what we expected to happen, what we've been talking about for a while, is starting to actually show up. You know, high interest rates, high inflation starting to finally weigh on the consumer. And now as you kick off these uh, student loan payments on, you know, uh, beginning on Monday, uh, that's going to further drag on this whole issue. But, um, you know, PCE at, at the core is is important. And yes, you know, PCE at the headline is is, is important as well. But no, you know, there is no good measure of inflation. You know, uh, Adam, you live in California. You pay stupid prices for real estate in California versus what I pay for it. You're in, in Houston. You pay stupid prices for gas. Why you pay five, six dollars for a gallon of gas is beyond me when it's three fifty in Houston. So, you know, it's it's you know, there is no good measure of inflation because everybody, no matter where you live, it also depends on your income, depends on what you buy and how you live your life. Those measures of, of inflation are different for every single family. So this is just kind of a ballpark gauge of what inflation kind of looks like. And, you know, we're trying to drive monetary policy in the rearview mirror, which is why they're always wrong. And it always winds up causing a crisis or a break in the economy. But, you know, you got to have something. You got you, you, you to have some measure to, you know, kind of go play the game. And, and so these are the best measures we have, but they're deeply flawed. Uh, they are. And thank you for taking your normal opportunity to beat up on the difference between where you live and where <laughs> I live. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you've got good temperatures and I'm hotter than hell right now. So there you yeah, go. I know. I, know. I got to hold on to what I can while I have it. Um, so agree with everything you said. I, I, while you were talking, I was furiously looking for this chart that I'm going to put up, um, which shows the miss in uh, personal consumption uh, or, or, or the downward revision. Right. Um, and look at this. It's a nine sigma miss. Now, for folks that don't know what sigma is, it's basically a statistical concept uh, in terms of um, a degree of error. Right. Something might be, you know, one sigma, uh, which means it's in a, a higher uh, error band than, than than normally would be expected. Um, well, this one is nine sigma. <laughs> so, can, I, can I actually help you out here a little bit? Yeah. So, so basically, if you think about one sigma, um, and they, these are rough round numbers, and you can go look it up and get the exact percentages, but I'm just going to give you some rough round numbers. Um, if you if you assume that something happens 95% of the time, so 95% of the time, something is going to occur in this manner. That's a one sigma event. Two right. sigmas, you're now pushing about 98%. Three sigmas, you're at 99.6%. Four sigmas, you're at 99.99%. So in other words, at a nine sigma miss, you're at 99.9999999, almost to infinity percent of that event occurring. So it's it's such a rare event. It is so far outside the magnitude of normality that it shouldn't actually ever occur, but it did. And, and what's important about this is this comes on the heels of the fact that the Federal Reserve just published their prediction on economic growth. And everybody's like, oh, they upgraded all their, their growth announcements. And it just all got downgraded in one day. Yeah, and of course the, the narrative- Which is also the subject of my my article on Friday. Is it, is it, okay, yeah. And also just the narrative that we've been hearing, you know, all year of, you know, hey, the consumer's super strong, right? You know, like this super resilient consumer's hanging in, right? And I've got some additional consumer data we're gonna get to in just a second. 
Um, but this really kind of puts a bullet in that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's that's the the whole gist of my article on Friday, which was talking about the Fed's predictions are always wrong. They are the worst economic forecasters on the planet. And, you know, and, and literally in just in one day, and unfortunately, I didn't have this data at the time I was writing the article, but it just blew their entire analysis right out the window. So all their predictions are now going to have to start to come down uh, in their next projections coming out because they're going to have to adjust for this lower PCE number because it's such, again, it's 70 percent of the overall consumption process. But this is why. And again, you kind of go back in history and, and you know, particularly the articles talking about yield curves and, and these recession risks that are clearly out there. And, you know, when you start looking at these events, this is why the Fed's always wrong. They're looking at trailing data that is highly, highly subject to revisions on a lagged basis. And this is why the National Bureau of Economic Research, they, they when they date something, they're generally nine months after the fact. They go, oh, yeah, the recession started nine months ago. Well, great. That was a lot of help now. But that's because they're having to wait for this data to be revised to pinpoint where the recession actually started. So, you know, it kind of begs the question, and I know you're going to roll your eyes at this, but like, why does the world hang on every syllable of every Fed you know, press conference when when Jerome Powell's out there and all the Q&A and everything, where no matter what the Fed says it thinks it's going to happen, it's got the world's worst track record, like yeah. you said. Well, the, the reason is... is like, the why only, do we continue listening? Well, the only reason is, is because this started back in 19, really 98-ish, when Alan Greenspan... You know, look, back in the 70s, if you went down the street and asked all your neighbors who the chairman of the Federal Reserve was, they go, the federal what? Um, nobody knew. In, in really the early 80s, nobody knew who the Federal Reserve was. In the 90s, nobody knew who the Federal Reserve right. was. K kind of. I'm sure they knew who Volcker was when inflation was 18% or, yeah, or interest rates were 18%. But no, not really, because we weren't. You got to remember back in the 70s, 80s, when I was growing up, there was one guy on our street. And he was down the street and around the corner, and he got the Wall Street Journal. And everybody was like, ooh, that guy's got a stockbroker. Nobody was involved in the stock market back then, except a very few people. And they were reading the Wall Street Journal. It, it, we weren't glued to our televisions every day, 24 seven. We weren't on our iPhones and our computers looking at every tick of the stock market. Right? We were living our lives back then. People were working and raising families and, and they basically they were happy. Um, so, but you know, they were just, most of their money was in a checking account and a savings account. That was, that was their net worth. They didn't have credit card debt. They didn't have all this other stuff. They had a house and a car, and that was pretty much it. They were raising their family. So nobody really knew who these people were. And then in the, in the late 90s, as CNBC came online and we started getting E-Trade and AOL, and all of a sudden, we started getting glued to Alan Greenspan and what he was saying. And, and you know, he was the, the maestro of gobbledygook. I mean, the guy could speak for an hour and nobody understood what the hell he said. But, you know, he was becoming that face of the markets. And then that really once Bernanke took over and we began all the stimulus, now we're glued to the Fed. We don't really care what the Fed says. All we want to know from the Fed is when the hell are you going to cut rates and start giving me more money? That's what the markets are wanting to know. And that's why we're glued to every single tick of inflation, employment, which are the worst indicators but we're, we're glued to those things because that's going to drive the monetary policy of the Fed. When are you going to give me more easing? Because if you give me more easing, stock prices go up and I can make money.
that's yeah. why I'm so glued to it. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like it's like the Fed's just like uh, you know Godzilla with a dunce cap on, right? Where it's like you don't really necessarily feel like you can trust what it's saying or, or hang your hat on what it's saying. But just whatever direction it turns in, it just creates all sorts of wanton destruction, or at least, you know, just moves everything out of, right? So you just, you have to pay attention to where it's going, even if it doesn't necessarily know where it's going next. Right. And, and it's the worst thing that we could have done to markets. I mean, you know, we, we started these whole bailout things, uh, you know, so, uh, last Sunday was the 25th anniversary of long-term capital management. But uh, the bailout of long-term capital management was the very beginning of too big to fail. So, you know, we started these bad policies back in 1998. We've carried them through to, to present. We've turned the market into a casino. Um, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, people held stocks for six to eight years when they bought stuff. Now it's five to six months. So, you know, again, we don't invest. We gamble. And this is why when you manage your own portfolio and why technicals matter so much, if your time horizon is a week to five weeks to a month to five months to six months, all that matters is technicals. Fundamentals don't matter. And unfortunately, that's where we are in the market today. You know, you buy NVIDIA at 40 times price of sales. Why? Because it's going up. That's that's why you buy it. You don't buy it for the fundamentals. You buy it because it's going up in price. Yeah. Um, funny you mentioned long-term capital management. Um, I, I've actually been in discussion with uh, one of the co-founding partners of long-term capital management uh, to potentially bring him on and, and have a discussion of basically what happened with all of that. Um, so I think that could be a really interesting discussion. Um, haven't quite locked him in yet, folks, but it's looking good. If he'll be honest with you, yeah, it'll be very interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's the point of the conversation is to, to just give an honest assessment of what went on there. Right. Um, all right. Um, hopefully folks, you're interested in that. If you are, let me know in the comment section below. Um, okay. A couple, couple charts just to dial through here real fast. Um, let me get the way, screen. Yeah. By the way, before you have that interview, you're going to have to have a history lesson. Most people have no idea who long-term capital management was because it was before their time. Uh, you're right. That is true. And uh, uh, for for those you know who, who don't know, basically, I mean, long-term capital management was uh, it was a, a fund that was sort of created by what? Uh, you know, you know, you know, it was two Nobel laureates, economists, right? One the smartest guys in the room. That that book was written about something else, but but it they were the first smartest guys in the room, right? Yeah, like, it, yeah. it was it was a it was a it was a well respected bond trader, two Nobel economic laureates, and um, there was a, another guy in there as well. There was a fourth one, I believe. He was just a kind of a Wall Street maven, um, but they they took on the bond market. They were leveraged. They were cranking out 40 percent returns every year for the first three years. And then the Fed hiked rates, blew the whole thing up, and then you had your first financial crisis. And then, of course, uh, the Federal Reserve had to step in, organize a bailout between 14 banks for bailing out long-term capital management because they were afraid of the financial fallout of this fund, which was $100 million at the time. So, you know, that was the first too big to fail was $100 million. Which was huge back then, right? Huge Tiny then, now. yeah. <laughs> I was just about to say is that now, if you're not in the trillions, it just don't matter anymore. So... Yeah. Um, and that really did sort of start the era that we're in now that I think we all wish we could get out. Right. Which was, you know, first just sort of hubris. Right. Where it was a sense of, oh, we got these highly degreed guys. Surely this is this is too smart to fail. Right. This is too smart not to wildly succeed. Right. Was sort of the, the sentiment at the time. 
a lot of money at the time, you know, went into this thing. Uh, and when it went belly up way faster than anybody could have imagined that it would, the central planners, the Fed decided, OK, we got to bail these guys out, you know, to kind of protect the contagion effect that this could have on the market. And that really began the, the era of bailouts. Um, I believe, actually, that Jim Rickards uh, early in his career was sort of assigned to help with the the organized dismantling uh, of long term capital management. Um, so maybe we'll have Jim come on at some point again and, and respond to the, the interview with the, the guy I hope to be able to do here. But but anyways, I mean, this was if you're if you're angry about this never ending cycle of tons of capital going in to chase, you know, hubristic uh, pursuit in, in the markets. And then when it goes belly up, uh, the authorities bailing out all the perpetrators, uh, usually at the expense of taxpayers and, and, you know, in some ways the purchasing power of everybody's currency. This really was the thing that kicked it all off. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, dialing through data, um, let me get uh, back to this for a second, but I'm um, looking for a chart here. Uh, so real disposable income uh, is now down for the third month straight. And let me uh, let me just find that here and I'll pull that chart up so we can see. Um, so this kind of is going back to, you know, what we said earlier about this whole narrative of, you know, resilient economy, uh, plucky consumer who's just weathering the storm. Um, we had the, the personal consumption nine sigma uh, revision that you and I just talked about. Real disposable personal income, as this this chart shows, uh, is down uh, for the third month straight. Um, you combine that with the personal savings rate. Uh, bear with me one second here. The personal savings rate uh, is sinking again. Um, it, uh, it you know this it, air just kind of keeps coming out of this balloon. I've got a really interesting. Uh, chart that I'm going to put up in about five minutes around personal savings. So let me just keep that as a teaser. Um, but also, if you look at consumer sentiment, um, it is now back on the decline, Lance, right? It sort of sort of picked up during the summer um, as the, uh, you know, we had those July highs in the markets and all of a sudden everybody was talking about forget soft landing, it's now going to be no landing. Um, but all of a sudden, sentiment's beginning to sink again. And so, you know, kind of where I'm going with all this is... Um, Jamie Dimon actually came out uh, with a, uh, a statement this week, and he, he talked about some crazy predictions of where interest rates might go. And I'm going to reserve that just for a second. But he, he basically said the sugar high is over. And I guess my question to you is, 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 you know, with the stealth liquidity that we saw this year that we've already talked about on this program, um, and, you know, the the party that we had in the, in the markets during the summer, um, are we beginning to kind of see the end of all that here? Like, is the sugar rush really coming off? I think a lot of this personal consumer data that I just shared certainly gives credence to that. Yeah, well, you know, we wrote an article back in 2020 and then again in 21 talking, and we actually titled it The Sugar Rush, right? Because at the time, everybody was like, oh, you know, the, the government's going to send everybody checks. Isn't it great? Modern monetary theory is here. And we're like, the sugar rush is fine, you know, and giving people money is like, you know, feeding them full of sugar. They're going to run out and spend it like crazy. You're going to have inflation and then it's going to be over. And, you know, we've been, you know, you and I have been talking about for weeks now that, you know, that monetary supply is slowly being drained out of the market into as a percentage of GDP is, uh, is declining. Um, you've now got these the last vestiges of these supports now kind of rolling off, you know, child tax credits, extended unemployment benefits, all that in December. 
Um, but we've had this ongoing uh, moratorium on student loan payments. That's now gone away. Uh, right. The only other, and then of course, you've also had this Inflation Reduction Act, which put 1.7 trillion of liquidity in the economy. That led to a lot of manufacturing spending. We saw a lot of CapEx pick up from that. So that's helped give this economy this, this kind of this continued dosage of sugar has continued to keep this economy kind of rolling along. But now there's kind of no more sugar on the horizon at this point. We're about to have a government shutdown over spending. Um, so there's no spending bill coming anytime soon. Uh, student loan repayments restarting. And then, of course, just the fact that you've got high interest rates weighing on consumers. It's just a function of time here. Yeah. High interest rates weighing on consumers. Uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back for being 45 minutes into the discussion and not having mentioned lag effect yet, yeah. <laughs> since I generally mention it all the time in every video. Um, so a couple of things to really reinforce you just mentioned there. One is the student loans. They went into repayment at the beginning of this month, at the beginning of September. The first repayment checks are due next week. Right. right. So money is now starting to is just about to start coming out of consumer wallets now. Right. It's been all academic until next week. Right. right. So we're going to see what happens there. Here's the chart that I mentioned. Uh, I, I, I teased you with earlier. Um, so, Lance, you and I have talked about the pig and the python many times on this channel, which is sort of, you know, all the combined stimulus from the pandemic era, as well as the stealth stimulus that's been done this year. Um, you know, how much of that is left in the economy? Um, it's, it's notoriously d difficult to measure in totality, but this chart seems to indicate that the stimulus pig has now exited the consumer python, right? Yeah. So this is household excess savings. And as you can see here from this chart from JP Morgan, it actually has now gone negative uh, in the last reading here on this chart. Yeah. So um, from a, from a, Take through the Python standpoint for the folks that were got real tired of us using that analogy. Uh, I think this is an important milestone to note here, which we right. can sort of say household savings wise that that pig is now out. Yeah, be, be, be a little just one caveat, be a little careful with the data, because, uh, again, you know, nobody really knows. Again, this is all kind of estimates and guesstimates about who has what in savings from what we sent them and, you know, those type of things. And again, the, these numbers are also heavily skewed by the top 10% of income earners. So they have a lot of savings. And so, you know, during the 2020 shutdown, 2021, they couldn't spend money on anything. So they just accumulated a lot of savings because they have a lot of cash flow from, you know, uh, rental income or business income or wherever they have their income coming in as a high net worth in, uh, income earner. Um, the lower 80 to 90% only had their checks. They've spent all those. So if you look at the bottom 80 to 90%, they've been out of cash for a while. And they've been diving into credit. And that's that's continuing to get worse here. But now you're starting to see that depletion of some of those savings, even in the top 10%, which is now going to start working their way through the economy as well. So, you know, there to, to your point, there's a bit of a lag effect here, but it's also skewed by who owns what. And again, the top 10% of income earners, they're not being affected near as much in this economy as the lower 80%. They're not, but to the point you just made, um, this is why when you sort of slump into economic correction, you sort of speed up as you go into the slump, right. because as those bottom 50% plus households are cutting back, their contribution to uh, 
the consumer, the spending in the consumer economy is less on a per capita basis, right? So it, it, it's only when it really starts creeping up into those those higher income households who who drive much more of the consumer spending. That's when you really start being able to notice. Okay, wow, things are really beginning to weaken here because those heavy spenders are now starting to cut back. And, and that's what we pay attention to. You know, like traffic flow on retail. You know, where where is the traffic flow going to? Are they shopping at Nordstrom's and Macy's, or are they at Walmart and Dollar General? Um, you know, because you see them start to step down as the economy really begins to weaken, and we're starting to see some of that now. Um, kind of very early stages of that, but we, we could potentially see more of that as we get into the holiday shopping season. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to start pulling in some of the discussions that I had with with Alf Pecatiello. And one comment he made that, forgive me, I'm I'm, I'm kind of doing it from a fuzzy memory here, um, but he he said that a lot of the approved spending that the administration's been doing all year um, is uh, basically coming up for renewal, like like it, it, it had an expiration on it, uh, or it was approved for a certain period. And he, he basically said that approval period kind of ends now, right, as we go into October, uh, and then would need to be reapproved going forward. But you just mentioned, you know, we're going into a potential government shutdown right now. We also have a divided Congress. There's an election year coming up. Seems pretty good odds that the Republicans would be doing whatever they can to, to thwart any future you know, potential generous spending on behalf of the current administration because they don't want the administration to be able to claim, you know, it's still handing out sugar money uh, going into the, the main election. Yeah. So how, how how likely do you think we're actually going to have a government shutdown? I'm just asking you to guess because you're not a political analyst. But if we do get one, how material of an impact do you think it's going to have? Well, the, the material. So the odds of, of the government shutdown are probably like ninety percent right now um, in the next couple of weeks. So because they're not going to get things done before then. Again, it's just the way kind of Congress now works. Um, and what this will lead to, of course, is a lot of debate. Uh, you know, finger pointing back and forth between both parties, saying, "Well, you know, they want to cut spending to these critical functions, and and now Social Security recipients aren't going to get their payments." Complete lie. Uh, we talked about this previously uh, during the debt ceiling debate. Everybody was coming out saying, "Well, you know, if we def- you know if we don't lift the debt ceiling, we're going to default on our debt." No, we're not going to default on our debt. No, Social Security is, uh, and Medicare gets paid. All that stuff gets done. We're going to print money, and that's going to get paid. Um, there's going to be other stuff we can't find because of of whatever it is, but those things will get paid. So we're going to pay Social Security. The government shuts down. Social Security gets paid, Medicare gets paid, prescription drug benefits get paid, military gets paid, um, interest on the debt gets paid. Now, we may have to, this is why, you know, during the Obama administration, remember we had our government shut down back then, everybody was all up in arms because we shut down the national park. That's what gets shut down, right? Non-essential spending gets shut down. So you lay off 900,000 workers and they're home for a couple of weeks on furlough. They come back to get all of their back pay. So they're not out any money whatsoever. But this is going to be the theater that we go through. And then at the end of the day, what will happen is that both sides will cave. We'll sign a continuing resolution that funds the government for the next year. But importantly, what you don't know is that that continuing resolution increases spending by 8% every single year. So every time they do these continuing resolutions, that does the spending for the next year plus 8%. So everybody gets 8% more money. And this is why the debt keeps accelerating. You know, we just wrote an article on Tuesday talking about compound market returns. It's a myth. 
markets don't compound. 8% annual increases in payments compound. And this is why if you're, if you're spending 8% more every year, every nine years, you're doubling how much money you're spending to the government, which is why we went from $9 trillion to $33 trillion since 2008. Right, right. I do want to ask you about your markets don't compound uh, article because I thought that was really interesting. Um, but uh, so kind of just getting back to sort of the spirit of my question here. Um, as we go forward from this point on, yeah. uh, government wise, like I said, we've had a lot of sort of stealth liquidity that's been pumped into the system this year that that pushed the recession back in time, we think. Right. And gave some juice to the markets. Right. In addition to the whole AI craze, and there was just more money sloshing around than, than folks thought at the end of 2023 going into this year. Um, do you think that 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 we're less likely to see that type of stimulus sloshing around going forward from here? My, my, my point is sort of like, yeah. you know, should we be considering this as one of the many shoes we've talked about that could drop here, which is like there's just going to be less juice, you know, goosing the system going forward? Temporarily. Um, look, I did political commentary and political talk for over a decade and, you know, did political an analysis work for almost a decade as well. And I'll tell you this, I've interviewed probably every Republican, Democrat person out there at one time or the other. Um, and you know, they always tell you the same thing. Oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And it all sounds great on the surface. Uh, you know, the Republicans will always say, oh, we're going to you know, we're going to cut spending and we're going to do these things. At the end of the day, they never do anything. Um, they just kind of cave in and throw in the towel and go along with whatever spending is being done because they want to get reelected. And if you're cutting spending, and this is why we never cut spending, if I cut spending to some social service or some social program that hits my constituents, I don't get reelected. And, and I want to be reelected. I like the perks of being in Washington. You know, it's, it's interesting you know, we're supposed, you know, according to the Constitution, we're supposed to elect people to represent the citizenry in government. They are the servant of the citizen and they don't act that way. Right. They act like, you know, they're they're the king of the power. And, you know, it's all about being there and, and making the decisions that best affect their financial futures. And this is why we don't make any progress towards fixing problems. And we keep just kind of papering them over either by bailing stuff out or just you know, continuing spending, et cetera. So you can bet that when we get into a recession, you're going to have more spending being done. Um, now that we went through the 2020 uh, situation where we were sending checks to household, you can almost bet that the next solution to the next crisis will be checks directly to the household. Why? Because it worked. It gave people money. Everybody got happy because everybody's getting checks. Damned it that you were going to get inflation from it. But that's going to be the go-to going forward is every time we have a problem, we're going to bail out banks, we're going to bail out companies, we're going to send checks to households because that's now the new formula for bailing out the economy. Mm. Um, can't argue until with that. The, and, and, until the point that you can't do it anymore. Right. Um, and there's there's been a lot of talk, and I'm forgetting the name of the program, but uh, you know, it's been put out there that you know we may just sort of bypass Congress sending checks to people and it might just be citizens have an account directly at the fed and the fed just plops money in there for them. Sure. Same, same, same outcome though. You know, there's yeah, same, a, yeah. I mean, I'm just curious. So, I mean, how, how 
what sort of timeline would you put on that with guesstimating is that that the next is that the next crisis or the next, you know? that's, i don't know what the next remedy is going to be is it going to be to count for everybody is it going to be just a everybody gets a social security check all of a sudden is that going to be the new thing how, how are they remedy this i don't know but the the the, the bottom line is, is that when you get to the next recession the go-to solution is more money to households and and the reason and this is you know we go back to 2008 you know, this is the big mistake that a lot of investors make about the Federal Reserve. They go, oh, the Fed's printing money. That's going to cause inflation. We didn't have inflation for 10 years, from 2011 years, from 2009 to 2020. We didn't have inflation, even yeah, though the it, Fed was increasing their balance sheet by a large degree. Yeah. Right. That was because I, mean, they would, they I know would, what you're saying. And I just want to parse it real quick. We, we, we didn't see that money we didn't see a ton of that money necessarily escape into the economy to push up consumer prices. We did have asset price inflation that that. No, no, I'm talking about, I'm talking about asset price. I'm not, I'm talking about inflation, inflation, CPI. You didn't have inflation because it was an asset swap. You were swapping fed credits, basically the, the, the reserve balances of, of these banks for the bonds. And so it wasn't in the economy. So that's why that's why that was that whole kind of thesis was wrong for 12 years because you had no inflation in the economy, even though that you were increasing the monetary supply and you were doing this, you know, the Fed was printing this quote unquote printing this money, but they weren't. They were doing an asset swap. When you sent checks to households, that was a totally different game because now you gave demand to what to this to the demand side of the equation. And, can, and cut off the supply side by shutting down the economy. That was the perfect perfect brew for inflation 101. And that's why you got such a massive surge in inflation. That was a very different structure than doing an asset swap by sending checks to households. And they'll do it again because it'll get them elected, but it's going to create inflation next time you do it again, too. Right, right. And, and, and yeah, I mean, they, 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 everything you said is right that, you know, checks straight to households is directly injecting that fresh new money, you know, straight in the economy. And it does goose the economy, right? Which is what they're trying to do. The cost of it is the inflation, right? Now, Um, now remember remember to your point, now to your point, you are right, right? We created asset inflation with QE, but that's exactly what was intended. Back in 2010, Ben Bernanke said in his statement, the reason that, so we've done QE1, it rolled off in June. The market declined by about 20% going into September of 2010. And we and, and Ben Bernanke announces in September the second round of quantitative easing. And he said in his statement, he says, the reason we're doing QE is to boost asset prices in order to boost consumer confidence, which will boost the economy, which to your point is exactly right. So the, what the Fed knew was, is by swapping the assets with the banks, it gave the banks money that they would go do proprietary trading with. They would run up asset prices. Everybody would feel better financially because their 401k is up now and their consumer confidence would improve and they go spend money. Exactly what you just saw happen earlier this year. Market ran up 15%, consumer confidence improved, economic growth picked up. Right what you would expect to happen. So again, it's a very different game that the, that the Fed plays with QE versus what the government did sending checks to households. Uh, so it, it is, they're different playbooks. <laughs> but the, reason, the reason why I really want to underscore this is sometimes people say the, hey, no harm, no foul. It's just an asset swap, right? And, and you know, we're, we're, not, we're not causing prices to raise and it's all fine. Nobody even notices, right? And of course, 
what happens is, is the people who own the assets benefit from, yeah. from QE, right? And as right. we've talked about, the top 10% of households or 90% of the financial assets. So the there is a great fell, there is a great harm, which Huge. is the acceleration of the, the the wealth gap in this country, right? And so what's kind of interesting is, is like, both of those solutions, you know, they get to a point where this the cure is is more painful than the disease, right? Yeah. In both cases, right? And at one point you just you 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 raise the wealth disparity so much that you're you have a revolution, right? And the inflation part that you know going direct to households, well, the risk there is that you basically kill the currency and that you know everybody can't afford anything because you basically destroyed the currency if you're if you run it long enough. So um you know, they're talked about as strategies towards, you know, creating a solution, but neither of them uh, really is, is is helpful in the long run. And both have very high social costs, right? But right now, it's it's still looked at as a, as, a, as a good that they're trying to engineer. Right. Well, of course. And, you know, I, I find it interesting, you know, because you're absolutely right. We've written articles about the, the wealth gap in America and, um, you know, the, the disparity between the top 10 percent and the bottom 50 percent who basically own nothing. Um, and, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head, you know, this is the, the prelude to economic, historically, all, all throughout history, this is, you know, when the rich get rich and they began to exert control and power over the economy, that's when you have revolutions and you kind of think, you know, and kind of in a repeat of history, you know, we've got governments now trying to censor speech and remove the Second Amendment and, you know, all these type of things, you know. Uh, you know, and, and this is all kind of that prelude that we've seen historically time after time after time when you have this big wealth gap and you begin this kind of social repression. That's what only leads to economic revolutions. I'm not talking about pitchforks and torches and those type of things. I'm just saying at some point you get the masses to stand up and they vote differently or maybe they do go pitchforks, pitchforks and torches. But, you know, there's eventually an end game to that suppression when it occurs and and not just the suppression of, of rights, but the suppression of wealth. Okay. Well, I, I, I gotta, I gotta manage my blood pressure here because we could, we could really get a good rant going on this, but we got too much more to talk about here real quick, just in ending this topic of, of the fed. Um, uh, oh, I gotta find the chart I just had here. Let's see, here it is. Uh, no, that's not it. Um, but basically I just wanted to put up another milestone here, um, which is, uh, the Fed balance sheet, uh, if I can find it here, um, uh, we should celebrate this, I suppose. Um, so QT uh, has been continuing on in the background. And uh, hooray, we're now down to just $8 trillion, right? So we have a trillion bucks. Yeah, we have almost, <laughs> almost uh, reduced the Fed balance sheet by a trillion dollars. Yep. Um, we should crack below the $8 trillion mark pretty soon. Um, so, you know, that's, that's not nothing, right? Um, it's still double what the Fed balance sheet was uh, prior to COVID, right? If I'm not mistaken, right? I think we were around four, 4 trillion or so then, right? And of course, right. we were at only 800 billion going into the, right before the great financial crisis, right? So we're still 10 times where we were back in 2008. Um, but I guess it is notable uh, to, to show that QT does continue in the background. So with the Fed's, you know, continued, well, you think they're done rising, raising rates, but but with the high rates that we have right now that that look like they'll stay high for longer, um, we still have QT happening in the background. Um, and, and that ultimately, you know, is is continuing to to pull, you know, increase that gravitational force that's pulling 
the economy, but but also to a certain extent, financial asset prices down too, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And again, you know, this is why I look, you know, going into next year, I think there's real risk to stocks. You know, uh, I'm right now I'm bullish in the short term because markets are oversold, sentiment's negative. I think we get a good rally here. But once that rally's over, then you know it'll be over, and then we'll have to deal with what happens next. And that's why I'm saying next year, all bets are off. I have no idea what next year is going to look like, but I think next year is the year where you're not going to want to probably be in equities that much. Okay. Um, that's a great transition to the next set of topics. Um, so I want to I want to get your opinion on some of the things that Alf Pecatiello mentioned. Um, as I mentioned, a big thing he and I talked about was the bear steepening that's going on in the yield curves, right? So yield curves get inverted, right? Where the, the uh, short end of the curve is higher than the long end of the curve, right? And um, uh, the, the curve can correct basically by either short-term rates coming down, right? And that's what everybody has been hoping for forever with the Fed pivoting, right? And we, we still don't think it's going to happen anytime extremely soon, short of a massive crisis. Um, it can also correct with the longer end of the curve, uh, with those yields beginning rising to get closer to the shorter end. And that's what's sort of beginning to happen right now. And one of the things that, um, I'll sort of two things. He said that um, the, uh, when the short end of the curve rises, you know that has some impact on the economy. It 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 it, it increases the cost of debt to a certain extent, um, but the long end of the curve, when that starts rising, that increases the cost of debt. But because it's it's debt for a much longer duration, he said it generally has about ten times the impact on the economy than rises in the short end of the curve. So when the bearish steepening starts happening, it's like that is really rough for the economy because that's really pulling, that's really increasing the, the gravitational force of the cost of debt, right? So that was one thing you just wanted to make sure. He's like, like these things are not even, right? They're not equal. A, a rising of the long end of the curve is much worse for the economy than a rise on the short end of the curve. Um, secondly, he said markets, in his mind, he said, they're, they're, they're testing, uh, uh, they're, they're basically testing the, the prices right now where they're just like, hey, you know, like uh, like straws on the camel's back, if you will. Like, um, hey, you know, like it, it, it seems like, uh, you know, with these additional rate hikes, like like things are going to hang in there. So, you know, how much higher can rates go? Like, can we can we just keep on going as rates inch up here, inch up here? And so far, nothing's broken. Right. So the markets are like, OK, well, maybe, maybe we can get away with a little bit more. Right. So it, it's kind of like straws on the Campbell's back where they're just trying to see how much they can get away with. But but highly likely at some point, you know, you're going to put on one straw too many. The whole thing's going to break. And that, that's where the real risk is in stock. So basically, he's just saying, like, like you know, earnings estimates haven't come down yet. Um, you know, they're, they're just seeing how much they can get away with at these higher rates. They're not they're not willing to basically, uh, you know, adjust their forward you know, projections and, and, and begin to actually, you know, do the work that maybe we should do today, given what's going on, uh, to start bringing asset prices down. They're like, I don't know. No one's really causing much of a fuss yet. Let, let's keep on doing this. So um, anyways, I'm curious to get your, your reaction to both of those. Well, first of all, bear steepenings are great for bond buyers because uh, generally bear steepenings are the beginning of your best rates of return for owning bonds, living long duration assets, uh, primarily for the reasons that he's, that he's right about, which is that, you know, it is an impact on the economy. And 
look, you know, right now everybody is short-term bullish on this is why they're increasing estimates. And this is why they're increasing outlooks. And they're all thinking that it's a no recession scenario. We're back in 1995, despite inverted yield curves and everything else, which again is the subject of the article that I just published on Friday at the website saying, you know, that's not the case. This is not 1995. But because nothing happened last year when everybody was expecting a recession, now we're assuming a no recession scenario. They'll be wrong, but it's going to, you know, nobody's willing to do that because, again, being bearish does not make money. And as Wall Street goes, I want to make money. I can't sell an IPO if I'm bearish on the markets. Why would, why would you buy my IPO if I'm telling you the markets are about to go down, right? How would I get armed to go public if I'm telling you the market's going to go down? Right. So or how would Instacart go public if I'm telling you the market's going to go down? Uh, Instacart's probably a crappy company. You don't I don't know. But I'm just saying, you know, you know, their valuation was cut by two thirds before they went public. Why would you want to own it? <laughs> right. You know, so it's just, you know, these are the things that you need to think about. What Wall Street's telling you short term is them trying to sell you a product. You've got to be thinking ahead. Um, I just had a conversation with a guy. Uh, he's one of your your viewers. He emailed me. And he was telling me about, you know, he owns a lot of stuff and, you know, in, in one to two year treasuries. He's kind of laddered out over 18 months and he's very happy. He's got nice yields on his money for 18 months. And my question back to him is great. That's awesome. Nothing wrong with it. What are you going to do in 18 months? Right. His yields will probably be zero in 18 months on those same instruments. So where are you going to go to then? And so this is why you've always got to be thinking about your investments and it's kind of like 3D chess. This is where I am today. This is where I'm going to be in, in, in six months, eight months. And where am I going to be in year, uh, two years to five years to 10 years? And you've got to start thinking out ahead of where these cycles go to. And again, this is why, you know, with, with buying bonds, you know, every time I get an opportunity, I keep buying more bonds because my window is 18 to 36 months. But the, the, the revenue potential or the income potential from that uh, from capital gains is phenomenal because of where yields are going to be because of all these very things that we're talking about, where yields are going to be as a function of that. And it's a function of math. It's not really a function of guessing. The only thing that could derail that trade was for some reason, we are able to go back into the 1970s and flip our economy from 80% services to 80% manufacturing and wipe out all the debt and get rid of the deficit and have no inverted yield curve. That's the only way that you're going to derail that bond trade going forward over the next few years. And I just can't find the math to make that work out. Okay. So, so your, your, your thesis for investing big in bonds right now is the, the situation that's going to prove you wrong is magic happens and you don't, believe that's going to be the case. Well, look, you know, things, I'm just telling you, things can happen. Could I be wrong in that trade? Absolutely. Um, but there's very few trades where you get a setup for something to where the outlook is, is as clear as it is. Again, 2008 was a great example of that. At the, at the bottom of the market in 2008, after Lehman blew up, bonds on all kinds of companies that were just deemed to go bankrupt. And there was no way these companies were going bankrupt. They had too much cash on their books. So, but everybody was just throwing bonds out, you know, baby with the bathwater at that point because everybody was going bankrupt because of the financial crisis. And there's that was one of those opportunities to where you could buy stuff, you could buy depressed stock prices as well because valuations were cheap. Everybody assumed that the market was going to zero, and that just simply wasn't going to be the case. Um, so again, you know, there's these opportunities you get where the outlook is is 
pretty, pretty clear. You just got to give it time to get there. It's not going to happen in three months. It's not going to happen in four months or six months or maybe even a year. But you give it time, the math is simply going to work in your favor. Okay. So I, I don't think Alf's view differs too much of you in that, which is, look, you know, one of two things is highly likely to happen, right? Which is the wheels come off, right? Something breaks, right? And at at today's interest rates or higher for long enough, we think the odds of that are pretty good for many reasons we've, we've discussed. Or the Fed gets inflation down under 2%. Right. I don't think that's necessarily the more likely scenario in the next 20, 12 months or so, but who knows? Yeah, it could happen. Right. No, the, the, the Fed will get inflation under 2%. No doubt about that. Right. And eventually, it'll eventually get there. Right. So it's going to um, get there and they're going to break something along the way doing it, but it's, you know, they're well, going to get there. And that's my point, which is that it's from our, you know, couch seat quarterbacking, you know, we, we think it's more likely that probably something breaks before the Fed gets gets under there. But, oh, but either way. Think, um, about it this way. Think, think about it this way real quick, Adam, right? So in March, we had regional banks about to go bankrupt because of the depressed collateral. These weren't bad banks, right? These, these banks own top quality collateral for their banks for their fractional share banking. Because rates were at four percent on the ten-year treasury, that the 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 values of that collateral had dropped so much that we had to basically close banks. Right. What do you think's happening to those banks right now at four and a half percent? Right. Right. Well, that, so that, that collateral didn't improve magically overnight. No, it it, it didn't. And, and stuff I'm not going to get a chance to really delve into you with you, but but like Jamie Dimon came out this week yeah. and basically said that you know. Folks should start preparing for the potential. He's not saying it's going to happen, but for the potential that uh, rates could go to 7%, right? First of all, I've written so many articles about Jamie Dimon over the years. He he just spews stuff out of his mouth just to make headlines, I think. Look, the guy is is a member of the Federal Reserve. And behind the whole scenes, there's, there's Jerome Powell. And over here is Jamie Dimon pulling Jerome Powell's strings, okay? Right. Um, You know, when, and, and if you notice lately, J.P. Morgan's been outperforming other banks because everybody's now assuming that other banks are about to fail and J.P. Morgan's going to buy them. So we're eventually going to wind up. This is like this is like the series, The Highlander, right? There can be only yeah. one. Right, and, right. Last and, bank standing. Yeah, it, it'll be J.P. Morgan. But don't buy it. Look, he says so much stupid stuff over the time. I've written so many articles about stupid stuff that he says that makes no sense whatsoever. And why he says it, I don't know if it's just to get headlines or, or whatever it is, but he says stuff is just complete nonsense. At 7% on Fed funds rate, you're going to be in a depression, my friend. Right. Okay. So that's what we were going to talk about if we had more time, which is let's just go through the mental exercise of what a 7% world yeah. would look like. But you already gave the punchline, right? Where it's just... By the way, he's talking about a 7% Fed funds rate. Yeah, I know. I know. So, you know, everything else gets gets nailed yeah. and uh, bolted on top of that, right? So, I mean, it it, it is almost inconceivable in this highly uh, indebted economy uh, that that anything would work in that scenario. But but what, what's what's meaningful of it is we have the CEO of the largest bank, right, most influential bank, just saying, hey, you should start thinking that rates could go even higher than where they are right now, right? Contrary to your, the Fed's done thesis, right? So I'm just saying, just to open that mental space, right, for, for a minute. Um, I did, uh, and, I, and, and it about blew my brain up. Yeah, <laughs> Well, so so, anyways, so, but but all of this is sort of why, you know, we're we're so 
concerned that a breakage is is yeah. the probability of a breakage is 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 scarily high, right? So where I'm going with this is um, so Alf says, look, um, the the Fed is playing for its credibility here, right? And so it's not going to pivot until it gets below its two percent inflation target, which is probably it's probably not going to get to before something breaks. So because it's trying to retain its credibility, it's it's going to allow the markets to take a fair amount of pain until the world comes to it on bended knee and says, Jerome Powell, please, please pivot <laughs> now, right? We, 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 we know you're trying to get inflation under 2%. We don't care. Just please, you know, Hank Paulson, you know, on his knees in front of Nancy Pelosi, just pretty please will you pivot. <laughs> and that's when the Fed will pivot. So what, what basically Alpha is saying is, is like, we should expect a fair amount of pain to happen before we get that that turning point, right? And so right now he says, I mean, it's kind of hard to be long anything right now because he expects during that pain period that stocks will suffer, but bonds will suffer too. He says once the Fed announces the pivots, he expects bonds, you know, treasuries to rally super hard. So he is right there with you that there is like a massive opportunity coming. He's just saying, you know, if you're buying in now, which may well be the right thing to do, right? Just know that you might be buying into a downward trajectory until in such time as the Fed is, is finally forced to, to get on the horse to rescue. And, and that's and that's a fair statement. And the problem with, and, and you could probably wait. The problem with waiting is, is that to his point, as soon as the pivot occurs, and this is an article that I'm writing for next week, you have the largest short position on bonds right now that you've had since 2018. And if you don't remember what happened in 2018, that was when we had the Fed taper tantrum and then the Fed was bailing out uh, uh, hedge funds in 2019, cutting rates to zero. Yields move so quickly at that point, you never had the opportunity to buy them. Because what will happen is, is yields are, are going to jump immediately when that occurs. You know, okay, well, as soon as they come back down a little bit, I'll buy them, right? They're just, they move so much so fast and then they're just going to keep going down. And, you know, your bond trade will be over before you know it. The, the whole bond trade from where we are now back to where we're going to eventually bottom will be something that occurs in a month, maybe two. Okay. Yeah. And we have talked about that in the past. And so there, there are several different types of investment opportunities. Um, a lot of it's sort of been said the same thing about a lot of like the, the precious metals mining space, which is like when it catches fire, you got to be in it beforehand because it moves so fast. You'll you'll miss the vast majority of the the move if you don't already have an initial position. You're saying the same thing on bonds, and I think more more than your words, Lance. You know, you are as you've shared on this channel. You know, you are measuredly preparing your client portfolios for this. But it sounds like in your personal portfolio, you know, you are saying, "Hey, I'm I'm happy to take that risk now because I think the upside's so big." Dude, you think you think I'm bullish on bonds? Michael Leibowitz is buying long dated treasury calls. So I mean, he's he's <laughs> taking he's taking my position and putting on steroids, and he's buying levered call options on bonds. So I, I, mean, I heard he's selling blood plasma, you know, to come up. Oh, with yeah, the, I the mean, you, you think I you think I'm taking a bet? He's he's swinging for the fences, and hey, he's he look. This guy knows more about bonds than than anybody I know and, and way more than I do. So I'm just telling you what he's doing. So great. And just a reminder for folks, Michael will be presenting his latest thoughts and outlook on the bond market at Wealthion's upcoming conference in three weeks. So I'll talk more about that at the very end here. Um, all right. So we'll start to wrap up here, Lance. Um, you, you, you mentioned um, 
the pain that the banking system went through with lower yields that we have right now, right? So higher yields just put more and more squeeze on the banking system. And I just want to share this chart real quickly to show that the, the, the squeeze continues, right? So um, the, the blue line here is capital flowing into money market assets. Uh, the red line here is uh, basically deposits on banks. And you're seeing this like just, they used to, you know, go in lockstep right up until the banking crisis. And then basically more and more consumers have just got the memo of like, hey, I can get a better return actually without the banking system risk by just being in a money market fund or being in T-bills directly. So, um, you know, the, the pain continues. And obviously if yields start to go up from here, uh, the banks just begin to suffer even further. Yeah. You know, and talking about Jamie Dimon, he's so disconnected from the average American. This is kind of to my point. Uh, and, you know, he's so many statements that he makes. He's so disconnected from, you know, how the average American works and what happens in the, the economy for the average American. Um, you know, J.P. Morgan pays zero interest to their deposit holders, but they will give you a six percent CD. As long as you have five million dollars. OK, yeah. So as yeah. long as you're one of the wealthy few, he's happy to pay you some interest on your CD deposit. But if you're one of the schmug people with, you know, just the average balance, uh, yeah, you get nothing, my friend. You're making my whole point for me. Yeah. So if you're one of the people that we decided should benefit from QE, we'll come over here. We're going to take great care of you. You know, if, if, exactly. if you're if you're one of the great unwashed. Uh, sorry, bud. Exactly. Um, so. All right. Uh, so uh, housing, just real quick. Um, another milestone. Um, 30 year mortgages are now at a 23 year high. Um Somewhere in the mid sevens, the article that I looked at said uh, 7.31% mortgage. I've seen some that are quoting higher. Uh, if you actually go online and look at that 30-year average rate in the state of California, which is where I live, uh, that's 8.46% right now. I mean, these these are numbers that would have caused certainly home buyers, buyers, but just realtors in general. I mean, it would have caused their heads to explode if we had told people in 2021 that this is where mortgage rates were going to be in two years. They just honestly wouldn't have believed it. Um, and yet, uh, you know, um, uh, the housing market hasn't cratered yet from a prices standpoint, from a transaction standpoint, pending home sales are the lowest on record right now. So, I mean, the market is in deep, deep subarctic freeze right now. And I guess just the question is, is, you know, what happens next? Uh, there's still people holding on to that that narrative of like, well, just everyone's just not going to sell. And so prices aren't going to come down. As you and I have talked about, you know, I, I don't think that's like the case for a whole bunch of reasons. But but I, I guess the, the higher these mortgage rates go, the, the more likely at some point this market's going to break. Do you agree? Yeah. Well, you know, two things are going on right now. First of all, you got you got new home builders. Right, that are financing loans at four and a half or you know four point four percent right now for two years. So I can go get a loan from a home builder for a brand new home at four four and a half percent for two years, and I'm just hoping that rates are going to be at the end of that two year period. Rates are going to be lower when I have to refinance. So you know that's helping buyers get into homes right now, and existing home uh, homeowners. They're just not selling. I mean, why would I sell my house with a 3% mortgage or a 4% mortgage to go get a mortgage to 7.5%? That makes no sense. I'm just going to stay where I am. So you kind of got this real you know, dichotomy of, of things that are going on that's keeping you know, the housing market, keeping the prices elevated, right? Because new home, new home uh, builders are able to charge a high price for their home because they're the only supply. 
So they're providing the supply, they're providing the financing, they can charge the price and people are willing to pay it. So that's keeping prices elevated. And then nobody's selling the existing home. So that's keeping the previous price where it was because what drives the price lower is transactions. If there's no transactions, prices are going to stay elevated. So it's a confluence of events that's that's interesting. I don't know how long it lasts, but at some point, I think you're going to see people come to market in force. And maybe that's when rates come back down again. All of a sudden, we see just a massive deluge of inventory hit the market that, you know, it kind of acts like a backward crisis almost. Um, I don't know what I don't know how this is going to end up, but it's a very interesting situation we're in. Yeah. And, you know, so so um, housing prices, housing price corrections tend to happen on a much lower trajectory than than financial asset. Uh, price corrections. Right. I wonder if if we do get a housing market correction, material housing market correction, um, I wonder if this one might be sharper and more violent than previous ones because we've kind of kept everything pent up in stasis here. And, you know, if when the dam cracks, you know, the transaction volume might be so vast, given that there's been so few, that prices could really fall far fast. Yeah, they could. Again, you know, I think if you start seeing homes hit the market and prices start coming down, then people panic because they want to lock in that high. They were already going to sell anyway. They were just waiting for rates to come back down. And if prices are coming down, even though rates are lower, which is backwards from the way it should be. But then you start getting this kind of this rush to sell. Everybody trying to capture the latest, highest price, which is declining. And again, it's just a thesis. I don't know, because um, normally lower rates would suggest higher prices, but to your point, prices have never corrected. So what could cause that um, is going to be interesting to see how this this ultimately ends up. I don't I don't know how it ends up. It's, it's just it's, like I know in my area, prices are stuck. They're not moving anywhere. And and home sales are fine. House comes on the market, it sells pretty quick. So that's just my area though. Yeah. Um, I just had an interview. Uh, I was interviewed by um, Michael. Oh gosh. Uh, Bolsonaro. Gosh, I'm, I'm murdering his last name. I'll, I'll look it up while, while we're talking and, and let folks know the correct pronunciation. But uh, he's uh, sort of like a Nick Jurley where he's got a, a very popular real estate uh, YouTube channel. And he was out here uh, visiting the Bay Area kind of to, to look at the housing market out here and uh, very kindly invited me to go on his channel. So we, we talked macro. Um, but you know, another guy who's been involved in real estate for a long time and uh, he Lance you know, just, just so you know, you know, a veteran like him thinks, okay, you know, this, this is going to break and it's, it's going to break bad when it does. Yeah. You know, he's, 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 I just, really nice. I just, yeah, I don't disagree. It breaks. I just don't know how it breaks. I think it's going to be very different than what you would think because we've had so many artificial influences that cause this problem. To start with and part of it, you know, too, we talked about before 3% down payment mortgages that, that boosted prices, you know, we've done all these interventions that have created this this big price anomaly, and we've priced people out of you know home affordability is completely through the floor right now. Right. So, you know, it just it, at some point, you know, it breaks. I just don't know how it breaks, and you know, you, you can fix this problem very quickly by making everybody pay a twenty percent down payment, getting you know rid of all the nonsense, and that would bring prices down, and then pri home prices would track inflation over time. But and you know, considering we're never going to go back to that type of, of game plan, this is going to end badly at some point. We'll have to bail it out. I just don't know how it does that. 
Yeah, well, whatever happens, folks, we'll be tracking it here. I, I, I will be honest in admitting um, I'm I'm shocked and at this point almost kind of fascinated yeah. at how how long the stock markets, the housing markets, been able to kind of hover near record highs without adjustment, uh, given all the factors that that Lance just mentioned out there. Everything from the you know seven plus percent mortgage rates to the record unaffordability levels to the fact that. Uh, uh, the Fed is not buying. What was it buying? Like sixty billion of mortgage-backed securities a, a month when it was doing QE. So that support's long been withdrawn. I mean, it, it is kind of amazing. But anyways, uh, we'll track it and we'll report on on how things go here on a on a week by week basis going forward, folks. Um, all right, going to start wrapping up. I'm going to get to your trades in one sec, Lance. I just want to put this chart up really quickly. I found it interesting. So initial jobless claims, jobless claims numbers came out this week. Uh, they continued to go down, which is a positive thing, right? Shows signs of, of strength in the, the jobs market. Of course, this is put out uh, by the, the U.S. government. Um, if you look at the conference board's job data, which are the red lines here, um, they're very, very contradictory <laughs> to the jobless claims numbers. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot of smoke and uncertainty in, in the jobs market in terms of what's really going on. But I think it's increasingly becoming a story of whose data you're looking at uh, to tell you uh, really what, what reality is on the ground here. Um, we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but I just want to give you a chance to comment on that any way okay. you want to. Yeah, no, no. Jobless claims are always low this time of year, uh, just from the way they're collected, because, again, you just had a bunch of seasonal hires for back to school and and teachers are going back to work and and those type of things. So you always have very low jobless claims this time of year, and then they rise into year end. So again, the, the recent reading is not surprising. Um, you know, keep a watch on the four-week moving average of claims, uh, what we call continuing claims. Those have actually risen a bit here. So um, in other words, people are having a tougher time quitting a job and getting a new job. So, you know, that's kind of the early kind of warning sign. But again, you know, it's just, you know, this is data. It's a, it's a survey sample. There's lots of mistakes with it mathematical adjustments. And again, it's, it's kind of like the employment number. You just kind of kind of take it with a grain of salt and just, you know, kind of put other indicators with it to kind of figure out what's really going on. Okay. Um, I'm just going to mention this real quick, just so we can talk about it later on, if it continues to sort of metastasize. But uh, so China, um, we've talked about the troubles that their real estate market has been having. It is the world's largest asset as measured by Goldman Sachs. Um, the latest news on that uh, breaking uh, today as we're recording is that Evergrande's chairman um, has just been um, arrested for quote unquote crimes. I don't know what kind of crimes. Um, but, uh, you know, are are we witnessing kind of the implosion of the world's largest asset here? Right. I mean, this is straight from the Chinese playbook. You know, heads have got a role. Looks like they decided the chairman of Evergrande. Now he's got to do some some hard prison time. Um, as the scapegoat for this. But I mean, when you just look at their their, their mortgage lenders, their property developers, um, their, their bank lenders, um, it, it's just, it, it's looking pretty grim at this point. I mean, this is the this is the country that was building entire cities that nobody lived in, right? I mean, right. they were building these, these, you know, train stations, these massive train stations with no trains. Uh, you know, they were just spending all this money developing this real estate that, had nobody to live there. And the whole thesis back in 2008, 9, 10, 11 was, is that all the people from the rice paddies were going to come move into the cities and become city workers. And that just never, that never, that was never going to happen. And it didn't happen. And so now you're paying for, again, it was an inevitable consequence of what would happen and why people think it would, wouldn't have happened is beyond me. But, you know, here we are. 
Yeah, and I don't, I don't know enough about the, the, the ghost cities themselves, but I got to imagine they're challenged once it's been built to find the capital to maintain the buildings in these ghost cities when, cities when nobody's living there, right? So you just have these structures that are just depreciating, right? So anyways, it, it, maybe this is just logic and karma, you know, catching up to this whole misallocation, misadventure of, of, of malinvestment. Um, but we'll see. But I want to flag it because the contagion risk from this could potentially be be large. No time to go into it this week, but I want to flag it in case it continues to build steam from here. Um, all right. Trades, Lance. I think you said you didn't do too much over the past week, but but what yeah. have you guys done? We didn't do any trades this week um, to speak of. And again, you know, probably our trades will happen next week as we kind of start positioning for kind of year end. Over the last several weeks, we've been increasing our equity exposure. We're pretty much fully exposed to equities and fixed income right now in our portfolios. Uh, so we're kind of where we want to be. Um, heading into year end. So now we just need to let the markets kind of do their workforce. Okay, great. All right, folks. Well, as we wrap up here, I want to remind folks that tickets are still on sale for the Wealthy on Fall online conference, uh, which is coming up fast. Now uh, it's on Saturday, October 21st. If you can't watch live, don't worry. Everyone who registers is going to get replay videos of the entire event, uh, all the presentations, all the live Q&A interactions um, to go sign up for that conference. Just go to Wealthy on dot com slash conference and you can still if you do it this weekend you can still lock in the early bird discount price that's our lowest discount of i think 29 percent. and if you're an alumnus of previous conferences check your emails you should have one from me with a discount code that'll give you an additional 15 percent discount off of that as we remind people every week i mean first off folks the conference is going to be a great conference in general it's the best faculty we've ever recruited but there's so much going on right now that it's an incredibly timely uh, event for really helping you understand, you know, how to play your positioning going into 2024. Similarly, uh, whether you go to the conference or not, you know, we all as investors have to make decisions. How are we going to start, you know, either protecting ourselves or positioning ourselves to profit from all the things that Lance and I just talked about going into next year? If you've got a good advisor, who is advising you on that, taking into account all the things that Lance and I talked about here, great, stick with them. But if you don't have one, or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe even Lance himself and his team there at RIA, then consider scheduling a free consultation with one of our endorsed financial advisors by Wealthion. To do that, just go to wealthion.com, fill out the short form there, only takes you a couple of seconds. These consultations are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a public service that Lance and our other great uh, uh, financial advisors offer to help as many people as possible figure out how to position as prudently as possible in advance of what, what might be coming down the road. You know, a lot of the issues that Lance and I just talked about. Um, if you uh, if you basically get your reason for living by watching these weekly market recaps with Lance and I week after week after week, please let us know by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And as long as you guys keep wanting us to do this, Lance and I will do this week after week after week. See, Lance, it's not just the intro. I got to get creative on the outros as well. Yeah, I like it. And if your sole reason for living is this weekly update, we got some other issues to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lance, look, I'll let you have the last word as usual. Uh, that's it. Uh, you know, look, uh, you know, I think we've just got to wait to see how October starts. We'll kind of evaluate it from there. You know, are we going to hit the seasonal rally? We'll see. Um, and then, you know, we're positioning for it now, but, you know, that could change. So we'll talk about it next week. All right. Sounds great, Lance. Thanks so much, buddy. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.